morning. So good to see you guys here. And uh, hopefully you have your Bibles with you. I want to encourage you, grab them, open them up to 2 Corinthians 11. That's where we're going to be this morning. And uh, as we continue our, new, our series uh, called New Life, we're going through the book of 2 Corinthians. We're almost done. We've got a, just a, a couple weeks left. And um, I, I hope it's been a, a good series for you. It's certainly been a good series uh, for me. Um, let's pray as we uh, prepare our hearts and our minds to hear God's word this morning. Dear God, thank you so much that Paul wrote this letter to Corinth, that we can read it, that we can understand it. Lord, help us in our, in our minds that we would understand well what, what, what was written and, uh, and why it was written. And Lord, as we uh, look at what that means for us, Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts, that we might embrace that message and live these things out in our lives as well. And I pray these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. In certain circles, uh, Joshua Harris is a fairly well-known name. Joshua Harris, anybody recognize that name? Joshua Harris wrote a book back, I don't even know how long ago it was, but he was in his 20s, early 20s, I believe, when he wrote it. Um, and he, he wrote a book called Kissing, Dating, Goodbye. And uh, at the time, it was uh, a fairly significant book uh, in, in Christian circles. And, 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 he, um, and, and, and he later in, in became a megachurch pastor. Recently, however, he decided, you know, the last couple of years, he, he said, you know what, I don't think all the stuff I wrote in that book was necessarily good, and uh, started to, to kind of question some of the things that he had written. And, and more recently, he uh, came out and said that by all the measures that he knows to understand Christianity, he, was, he would not call himself a Christian. Uh, recently, we also had uh, Marty, Marty Sampson, whom he may not know as well as remember, I didn't know who he was, but he's written a lot of worship songs for for bands like, um, I can't even remember the, pa- the, the bands, but there's a whole, whole list of bands, bands you would, you would recognize, uh, Hillsong, Delirious, and others. And uh, he uh, recently announced that he is um, questioning his faith. He came out and said something and then cl- later clarified that he's questioning his faith. His faith is on shaky ground. And, uh, and there have been others recently. Interestingly enough, a, a guy named John L. Cooper, who was the lead singer and bassist for the band Skillet, the rock, Christian rock band Skillet, uh, on Facebook responded to this and, and responded to some of these people who have come out and said, hey, I don't know if I believe in Jesus anymore. I, I, I don't follow him anymore. And, uh, and he responded on, on Facebook, and I, I won't read you the whole post because it's rather lengthy, but I did put it on our Facebook page. So if you want to read it, I encourage you to do it. I think it's well worth reading. But here's part of what he wrote. We'll put it up on the screen for you. It says, what what we are seeing now is the result of the church raising up influencers who did not supremely value truth, who've led a generation who also do not believe in the supremacy of truth. And now those disavowed leaders are proudly still leading and influencing boldly away from the truth. Is it any wonder that some of our disavowed Christian leaders are letting go of the absolute truth of the Bible. And subsequently, their lives are falling apart. Further and further, they are sinking in the sea, all all the while shouting, Now I've found the truth. Follow me. Brothers and sisters in the faith all around the world, pastors, teachers, worship leaders, influencers, I implore you, please, please, in your search for relevancy for the gospel, let us not find creative ways to shape God's word into the image of our culture by stifling inconvenient truths. I think those words are, are significant, and I think he was, he was absolutely right on, and he says some other things in his post. Like I said, it's well worth the reading. And, and, um, 
And, and I, as we look at the text this morning, as we look, go look at 2 Corinthians, I think we're seeing in the first century some of the, first, some of the same kinds of things that we often see today. By the way, people renouncing their faith isn't new. It's happened before. It's not like all of a sudden, out of nowhere, people go, oh, I'm going to renounce my faith in Jesus, and it's never happened before. It certainly has. Uh, throughout the centuries that Christianity has been around, it's happened. The question that we have to ask is, is why? Why has it happened? Here's the reality. The gospel of Jesus Christ is an inconvenient truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ is an inconvenient truth. It's not the kind of thing that when we hear the gospel, we we immediately love it. As a matter of fact, a lot of the times when we preach the gospel, people initially hate it. Why? Because it starts out with, you're a sinner. And people don't like to hear it. We don't like to hear that we're broken. We don't like to hear that we're fallen. And so the gospel is very much an inconvenient truth. Because this truth is so inconvenient, many have attempted to contextualize it so much so that they lose sight of the gospel itself. We, we want to be relevant. As a matter of fact, now, I don't even know how many years ago now, but it, it, seems, like it, it, it seems like it wasn't that long ago. Maybe it's longer than I, than I thought as I think about it. But there was a magazine that, that came out, and, and the title of the magazine was, was relevant. Like literally that word. That was, that, was the, that was their goal. It was a Christian magazine, and, and they, they wanted to be, guess what? They wanted to be relevant, right? And, and, and sometimes pastors and preachers, and I have certainly been guilty of this, have gotten up and we go, how do I make, we ask this question, how do I make God's word relevant to the people sitting in the chairs and, and hearing the word proclaimed? How do I make it relevant? Can I just be honest with you? That's the wrong question. And it took me a while to figure that out. God's word is always relevant. The better question is, how do I help you recognize the relevance of God's word? That's a better question, isn't it? But so often, we ask the wrong question. How do I make God's word relevant? As if God's word needs to be formed and, and changed or twisted. And they, we wouldn't use that word, but we, you know, in order for it to be, have any application to the life that you live. But the reality is that God's word absolutely 100% has application to how we live moment by moment, day by day. And it doesn't need me making it relevant. It's already relevant. But we need to recognize that and figure that out. And sometimes we contextualize and we get creative, as John Cooper recognized. And sometimes we try to get so creative that we lose the truth and the message of the gospel and of Scripture itself. It's not a new phenomenon. It's one that the Apostle Paul faced in the first century as we open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'm going to read the verse 1, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 16. It says this, I hope you will put up with me a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. And then jump down to verse 16. It says, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting in this self confident boasting. I'm not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. 
Now, I, I love Paul, and he, here's one of the reasons. Because I think Paul had the spiritual gift of sarcasm. I really do. If you, if you read this text, if you, and you don't see the sarcasm here, then you clearly don't have the spiritual gift of sarcasm. Paul, Paul is not, you know, sometimes we have this idea, and we, we look at Scripture in, in kind of this solemn way, and we, and we sometimes miss these humorous spots in Scripture because we want to treat it with respect, which we should, 100%, but we should also recognize what's being written, how it's being written, the style in which it's being written. And Paul is being sarcastic in this text. And, it, and, and so you kind of got to put your sarcasm brain on a little bit as he begins to talk to them. He begins to talk about a fool, and, and, and he says, put up with me and my foolishness and, and all these things. But, but here's the thing, as I read this, one of the things that we ought to come away with is this. If you're going to be a fool, be a fool in the eyes of the world. If you are going to be a fool, then be a fool in the eyes of the world. Make no mistake about it, Paul is no fool. And he does not consider his endeavors to be foolish. He is dead serious about the gospel. He is passionate about preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. He will not let it go. He will not walk away from it no matter what happens. And we're going to see that in this text as we look at it this morning. He is no fool to be certain. And as a matter of fact, it's, 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 it's kind of, it, like I said, it's sar- the sarcasm is it's thick as we, as we begin to read the text. Let me see if I can help you understand. If you don't, maybe you don't have the spiritual gift of sarcasm, all right? And I know it's not listed in 1 Corinthians or Romans. I know it's not listed there, but I'm, I'm just, it's just, I just think that I, God gave me that gift. And maybe it's a special gift. I don't know, but... Um, but you have to have it as you, as you look at this text. So let me see if I can help you just in case you don't have the gift of sarcasm. In verses 19 and 20, he said, You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts, errors, or, or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. In other words, that, that verse where he says, You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. Who puts up with fools? Do wise people put up with fools? No. Who puts up with fools? Fools put up with fools. Fools put up with foolishness. And and to make it obvious in verse 20 when he talks about those who slave and exploit and all these things, nobody should put up with being enslaved and exploited. Those aren't good things. We We don't put up with those things. We ought not put up with those things, right? Paul's not saying, hey, you should be enslaved. That's not what he's saying. Clearly, he's suggesting to them that they have put up with foolishness to the point that they have allowed fools to influence how they see things. And in kind of a backhanded way, when you see him say, when you say him say, you gladly put up with fools since you are so wise, you should hear the sarcasm in his voice. You put up with fools since you're so wise. That's how you should hear that, right? You're so wise, you and all your wisdom, you, 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 you are so smart, and, and all these things that you let people enslave you. That's how we should hear it. He, he, he's rich with sarcasm, and he's, he's in a sense, in kind of a backhanded way, saying you have been very foolish, church in Corinth. In fact, the world puts up with all kinds of foolishness, doesn't it? In the name of enlightenment, usually. Or in the name of freedom. 
in the name of progress, in the name of all of these things, in the, in the name of, of humanity and, and, and this progress toward whatever it is that we see as the end. We think we are so wise. But who puts up with fools and foolishness? The answer is other fools. That's why Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before swine, right? He was talking about wisdom and foolishness. And yet that's exactly what the church in Corinth had done. The church in Corinth had, had found these super apostles and these, these critics who had come in and said, hey, look at us, look at how wise we are, who began to boast in their accomplishments and boast in all of these things. And the world, and they operated in the ways of the world, and, and perhaps they even used some words, I don't know, but, but maybe they came in and said, and said, look how relevant our teaching is. Look, look how we can help you. Look how you can succeed if you follow what we're doing and, and listen to our teaching. And, and they began to twist the truth and to twist reality and to twist God's word, perhaps in an attempt to make it relevant. How often do we do the same thing? I mean, stop and think about it for a moment. We do this all the time. We, we listen to enlightened arguments. They sound so lofty, these ideas, and, and we listen to them. And, and, and instead of using Scripture as a filter for how we see the world around us, we listen to these lofty arguments and, these, and, the, and, the, and the ramblings of fools, we, and, and we let them influence us, and we, we take those things in, and we begin to think, oh, well, this is not such a big deal. We can, we can accept that. We can allow that into our lives. And all the time, we are faced with this reality that so many things have been argued for by the world, and it's foolishness. But we receive it anyway. We accept it. We take it in. How often do we do it? We must learn to see the messages, the arguments, the ramblings of this world through God's wisdom. But the wisdom of God, in fact, the gospel itself is foolishness to the world. As a matter of fact, Paul talked about that in 1 Corinthians. In the first letter he wrote to the church in Corinth, in chapter 1, he talked about it. In verse 18, he said, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. If you're going to be a fool, be a fool in the eyes of the Lord. Because the reality is the world looks at Jesus and they see foolishness. They don't understand it. They worship all the wrong things. They worship themselves. They, we put ourselves up on a pedestal. We put ourselves on the throne. We put ourselves as if we had created the world. And we think that we can take the world and form it and manipulate it and make it be what we want it to be. In other words, we like to define our own truth, don't we? That's what the world tells us. I mean, you literally have to, have to look and wonder, at least I do. I, I look at the messages that come from the world, and, and I literally sometimes sit there and go, how does this make any sense at all? Because the world literally wants to take and redefine even physical existence. We want to take the world and form it to us. We want to create the world in our image, or, or more aptly, we often want to create God in our image, rather than recognizing that God is the one who created us in his image, not the other way around. 
we take and we form and we manipulate and the world does it all the time and, and even attempts to take physical realities and demand that they must operate according to my truth. It happens all the time. But this is exactly what, what Paul did. He, he could brag about his resume. We talked about that last week and he begins to in this text, right? But much like the super apostles to whom he was being compared, he quickly turns it on its head. And instead of boasting about his credentials, he begins to boast about his weakness. As a matter of fact, in verse 30, it says this, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. So if you're going to be a fool, be a fool in the eyes of the world. But if you are going to boast, boast in your weakness. If you are going to boast, boast in your weakness. This is so countercultural, and it was in the first century. It was in the first century. If you boasted, you boasted about what you've accomplished, or you boasted about your gifts, or your talents, or your skills, or whatever, right? We, and we see this all the time. And Paul kind of stops for a minute, and he says, he, he begins to go, okay, put up with me. I'm, treat me as if you would a fool. You put up with fools, treat me as if I'm a fool, right? And he begins to talk foolishly, as he would say. And he begins to go, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And he begins to go, kind of go through his resume and lay it out and go, this is who I am. This is my resume, and we talked about that last week. But then he turns it on its head because he kind of, it's almost like he rushes through his resume so he can get to these other things, to the things that he calls his weaknesses. And he begins to talk about them. What we need to realize is this, that when it comes to boasting, and I want you to listen carefully here, boasting about our own accomplishments glorifies who? Glorifies us. Boasting about our weakness is depressing, but when we boast about our weakness and God's greatness, it glorifies God. And that's what Paul begins to do here. And he, and he, and he does that starting in verse uh, 23. He says, I am more. He's talking about these super apostles and he's comparing himself to them. And he says, I am more. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again, Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for the churches. Who is weak? I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inward, inwardly burn. So he stops, he, he goes and he begins to talk in this foolish way, right? He begins to brag about, about, about these things, or, or I, I'm, the, I'm a Jew of Jews, I'm, all these things. And then he stops and he goes, and he turns right into the, the weaknesses, as he calls them. And all these struggles, all these sacrifices, all these sorrows, all these things that he's faced, all these hardships that he's faced, for what? For the sake of the gospel. As a matter of fact, I put a little list together because it might be kind of confusing as we read through that. I didn't, I, I was trying to, Avoid reading that whole passage, but it's so good. I just had to read the whole thing right there. But let me put in a list for you. Here's, here's Paul's sufferings, right? Prison, seven times, according to Clement of Rome. 
first, in, in the first century, he was a, he was a writer, not, non-biblical. In the Bible, it, it records four times. I think it was four times that Paul was in prison, but Clement of Rome wrote that he was in prison seven times. Flogged and beaten, eight times. Stoned, once. Shipwrecked, three times. Out in the open sea, one night. Now, have you ever been out in the open sea when it's dark? Have you been? It is scary. Like, I would literally rather be in the middle of the woods and the mountains at night. I don't know why. There's something about the trees and the mountains that I feel like I have structure. But when you have, when you're, when you're open sea and you, you've got no light, nothing, that's scary. Plus bandits, false teachers, hunger, all, those, all the other stuff he talked about. And probably more than that. In other words, Paul suffered a great deal. But here's the thing. In the first century, that's not what you brag about. That's not what you boast about. You don't boast about your weaknesses. And today, we don't boast about our weaknesses. We don't come and say, look at how weak I am. Look at, look at all, these, all the suffering I've had. Look at all this stuff. We don't do that. It's not culturally acceptable. We're not supposed to do that. And yet, that's exactly what Paul does. What does he boast about? Not his certifications, not his degrees, not the success of his tent-making business, not his portfolio, all of these things were done for what purpose? Why did he endure? The answer is this, the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the answer. I could sit here and stand here and tell you that when you share the gospel, it's this great rewarding thing, and, and it is in a certain sense. It is an amazing, if you've never had the opportunity to sit down and share the gospel with somebody in a, in a very plain way, and especially to, hear, to, to watch them respond to that positively, if you've never had that opportunity, it's amazing in so many ways. It's, it is rewarding in its own sense, but can I just tell you something? That in general, the spread of the gospel doesn't come with all kinds of rewards. It comes with shipwrecks and beatings and being stoned and all the things that Paul, that Paul just talked about. Now, maybe not literally for us. Not, anybody been stoned in here other than by a brother or sister or something like that? Right? Yeah, we don't get stoned. We don't stone people today. With real stones, unless it's like you're 10 years old and you're just mad at your brother or sister. I'm not saying I ever did that, but I've heard of people doing that. Right? Like that, that's kind of a weird thing. But we will get stoned verbally. Or we will be put in our place, so to speak, on a cultural level. You, you, you will be ridiculed. You will be, do you really believe that? Why do you push your beliefs on me? Why do you shove this down my throat? And I, I'm not saying you should shove it down people's throat, but people often respond hyper-negatively, right, when you begin to talk about Jesus. The, you, you begin to talk about Jesus, and especially when you start with that first part of the gospel, which is helping a person recognize that they're in need of saving. And when you begin to help a person recognize that they're needing saving, and really you can only do so much, right? You, you can only kind of bring things up. The Holy Spirit's really got to do the convicting. But you, you begin to bring that up, and, and it's automatically, you're shoving that down my throat. It's like, no, oh, no, not doing that, not doing that. Just trying to express truth and share truth and good news, because there is good news, but you've got to get through that first part of bad news first. I love to tell you that, that the gospel, with sharing the gospel just means you're, everybody's going to love you all the time. But can I just be honest? It's not what it means. I mean, just look at what Paul went through. 
So here's what I'm going to tell you. Here's what, here's what, if you're going to be passionate about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you're going to be passionate about sharing the good news of the gospel, how, how people's sins can be redeemed, how we can receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ because of the cross, how, how God became man, took on human flesh, went to the cross, was buried, was resurrected, and ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father. If you're going to begin to tell people that message because they are in need of a Savior, because sin has infected them, because they've done something that is offensive to God, and is, that, that offends His character and His, and, and, and his morality, that, that they have committed sin, and so they need Jesus. If you're going to communicate that message to people, whatever the, whatever the modern-day version of being shipwrecked, stoned, and beaten is, you can expect that. I just want that to sing in just a second. Because sometimes we have this idea that God just calls us to a life of ease. But doesn't, God doesn't call us to a life of ease. He calls us to a life of sacrifice. Paul's stoning, perhaps, is your sacrifice for the kingdom of God. Maybe your beatings is generosity for the sake of the gospel that severely impacts your bank account. I don't know what it is that God is calling you to do for the sake of the gospel that has risk. But I can tell you this, he's not calling you to live a safe and easy life. He's calling you to live an abundant life. He's calling you to find joy in the good news of Jesus Christ in the grace and the mercy that has been extended. He is calling you to live a meaningful life, a purposeful life. But he's not necessarily calling you to a safe life. Perhaps you're be, being called to do something to serve in your community or to serve in another country. Maybe it's short term. Maybe it's long term. Maybe God's calling you for something other than what you're doing right now. Maybe not, but maybe Maybe some of you, as you sit here and you hear the word of God and you begin to think about God's calling in your life and what God has given you, you begin to think about what could, what could God do through me if I made a change in my life? What, what might that look like? What would it look like here at Grace? What would it look like here in Lakewood and the surrounding community? Or maybe what would it look like if I went on the mission field, if I went overseas somewhere? What would that look like? Is God calling me to that? And if God's calling you to something, something's coming to your mind, would you do me a favor right now? Could you just write it down so that you can pray about it? I'm serious. Like, you take your pen. There's pens and chairs in front of you. You got a bulletin. There's a place for notes. You take it and you write it down so you can pray about it. Start to examine what God's calling is for you. We are not called just to rewards, although there are those. We have, there is, it is, it is rewarding to share the gospel. It is rewarding to see people respond to it. it. There are rewards in heaven where we store up our treasure in heaven and not on earth, right? There, absolutely, that is true, 100%. I don't want to skip that. But in this life, oftentimes there's sacrifice. The greatness of the gospel is not found in our strengths, in our accomplishments, it's found in our weaknesses and God's redemption. Only the real thing, the true gospel, will suffice. We're going to jump back up to verse 1 of chapter 11. And we're going to read through verse 4. It says, I hope you will put up with me a little, in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I am jealous for you 
with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preach, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. We begin to lose sight of the gospel when we begin to, fu- to allow, our imita- allow for imitations that preach part of the gospel. Paul, Paul has three things here, right? He has three things, and he says, you've got to have the real thing, because it's the real thing is what matters here. L- let me put it this way. Just okay is not okay. Only the real gospel, the real Jesus, and the real spirit will do. Just okay is not okay. Only the real gospel, the real Jesus, and the real spirit will do. Paul emphasizes in this text that there's one gospel, one spirit, one Jesus. Now here's the thing. He, he listened in this order, right? It starts, starts with Jesus. That's first. And then spirit and then gospel, right? Here's the thing. If you get Jesus wrong, you get everything else wrong. If you get Jesus wrong, you get everything else wrong. And there are so many ways to get Jesus wrong. And they were doing it in the first century, and we still do it today. We have all kinds of different Jesuses. And we get these, this, this idea that, we, that he's kind of this, this thing that we can kind of manipulate like clay or something like that. But really, we're the clay, right? Notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say this. If someone doesn't agree with you regarding when Jesus will return or the details of creation narrative or the sign gifts or whatever your peripheral theological issue is, he, he, doesn't, say, he doesn't say that those are the things that should divide you. He, he really boils it down to the core, right? Jesus, the Spirit, the Gospel. We can have disagreements about some things. We can, we can look at Scripture and there are some things that we might look at and we go, well, that's not quite how I understand. I think what... What God is saying is this over here. We can have some disagreements about some things, but if we get Jesus wrong, if we get the Spirit wrong, we get the Gospel wrong, we're in trouble. We've got to get those things right. Let me see if I can illustrate this a little bit. AT&T launched, launched a, a commercial com- campaign recently. Um, maybe, you've, maybe you've seen the commercial, but here's what I'm going to do. Instead of explaining the commercial to you, I just want you to watch it. So, so here's one of their, one of their recent commercials. Ride safe? Assembled it myself last night. I think I did an okay job. Just okay? What if something bad happens? We just moved in the next town. <laughs> just okay is not okay, especially when it comes to you. Right? They have one for a surgeon, right? Just okay is not okay. When it comes to Jesus, just okay is not okay. It's not okay if we just kind of sort of get him. It's not okay if we, could, if we come along and we go, we go, well, I sort of get Jesus right, because people get pieces of Jesus right all the time, but they get significant things wrong. As a matter of fact, there's kind of these, these different Jesuses, right? One of them's the passive Jesus. We like a passive Jesus. The reason that we like a passive Jesus is because if Jesus is passive, is passive he is not the one who is, he doesn't, he doesn't require any change in our life. He doesn't require anything from us. He's just passive Jesus, Right? He's mild and meek, sometimes even weak as, as he's presented. 
He doesn't really demand anything from us. But the problem is we run into Scripture and we see passages where he says things like, take up your cross and follow me. Or when, or when he says, when they hate you, remember they hated me first. Or, or when he goes into the temple and he turns over the, the money tables, right? He turns over the tables. In other words, the Jesus of Scripture is not passive. The loving Jesus. Well, Jesus is loving. There's no doubt about that. Jesus is absolutely loving, but we, we get this wrong so much of the time because the love of Jesus is a love of sacrifice, and he even makes room for judgment. As a matter of fact, Jesus is the ultimate judge. He is the one that judges us. We like the loving Jesus, but we don't understand the love he presents because Jesus doesn't sound very loving when he, call, when he calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. But his love doesn't often look like some people think it does when we look at Scripture. He is absolutely loving, but he's loving in a sacrificial way. And even in his love makes room for judging us. Then there's the wise Jesus, right? Wise, Jesus was wise. He was a wise teacher, and, and he certainly was wise. We just not long ago did, did the Sermon on the Mount, which is a lot of wisdom literature, right? And he gave many, many, many wise sayings. There's no doubt about that. But when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, when Jesus, when Jesus tells people to, to, to take up their mat and walk when they've been paralyzed their whole life, when they haven't been able to walk, he's more than just wise. When he claims to be God himself, taking on human flesh, that's not just wisdom. There's something else going on there. There's the accepting Jesus, which is probably people's favorite Jesus. In many ways, he is accepting but this is the non-judgmental Jesus who said, don't judge in Matthew 7, right? Jesus just accepts us the way we are. And there's a certain element of truth to that. Jesus does accept us the way that we are, but he loves us way too much to leave us that way. He is a, an accepting Jesus, no doubt. But he calls us to live holy lives, to repent from wrongdoing, and to sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom. There's other misrepresentations of Jesus. This is just a few. But if you get Jesus wrong, you get the gospel wrong and the spirit wrong. When it comes to Jesus, the spirit and the gospel, just okay. It's not okay. We got to get that right. We have to go back to scripture. We have to understand who he is. We don't have to know every detail about him. It doesn't mean that we have to get everything exactly right, but who he is and his work and the gospel message, we have to get that right. Getting Jesus sort of right isn't really an option. This isn't to say we know everything about him. But he did say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what's the next part? No one comes to the Father except through me. We boast in Christ because that is the only thing worth boasting. Verse 10. Verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 11. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Jesus was what Paul boasted about. Let us be people that boast about Jesus. If we're going to boast anything about ourselves, let it be our weaknesses so that people can see God's redemption in our life. When we boast about us, it becomes about us. When we boast only in our weaknesses and forget Jesus, it's just depressing. But when we boast in our weaknesses and the glory and the greatness of God, then God's amazing character is revealed. Amen? Let's pray.
Dear God, thank you so much for your goodness. You are a good and gracious and loving God. Lord, as we come together and worship you, help us to know that. May your spirit work in our hearts and our minds. May we understand who you are in a deep way. May we know the sacrifice that you've given so that we could receive your righteousness, so that we could be made right before you, the grace and the kindness and the love that you gave us. But let us not forget your holiness and your righteousness. Lord, we come to you to receive mercy. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the shedding of your blood. Thank you that you were buried, but you did not stay buried. Thank you that you rose again. You rose again to new life and that we can embrace that. And we too can receive new life. And that you ascended to the Father and you now sit at his right hand, mediating on our behalf your heads bowed and your eyes closed this morning if you're sitting here and you're going you know what I have not put my faith in Jesus Christ and I need to I just want to give you that opportunity there's nothing magic that we say it's just a moment to say I haven't done that but I I need to receive Jesus Christ and the blood that he shed and the forgiveness of sins that I can stand before him righteous righteous and holy not because I am righteous and holy but because I have received the righteousness of Jesus. If that's you this morning, I'm not going to embarrass you or anything like that, but I do want to know who you are. I want to pray for you. If that's you, would you just slip your hand up so I can see it? Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, there's times I've really been ashamed of proclaiming the gospel. I've been afraid. I've been more concerned about how the world viewed me than how Jesus viewed me. If you're sensing this morning, you're thinking about your life, you're reflecting, and you're saying, you know what, I need to be foolish in the eyes of the world. Because I want to preach and share the good news of Jesus Christ. And you you just want to make a change this morning. Would you just put up your hand again so I can see it? I just want to pray for you. See those hands. Go ahead and put them down. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much. And God, I pray for me. I pray that I would be willing to be foolish in the eyes of the world so that I might proclaim the good news that you have brought us in Jesus Christ. God, help each one of us to do that, to do it with boldness and passion and love for you. Thank you for the gospel. Pray these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to continue worship this morning as we take communion.